Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory, Glory to, to you, you, Lord Christ. Christ. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born of God when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Morning, everyone. Welcome. It's great to have you. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations, the thoughts of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you even now, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As most of you know, we're in the midst of a sermon series on the New Testament book of 1 John, which is a letter to a church after a church split. Sadly, Church splits are quite common. We have it in our history, in our denomination, the PCA split off from the mainline Presbyterian church, now the PCUSA in 1974. And it did so over biblical and doctrinal disagreements that aren't too dissimilar from what this church is facing. And with this church that John is writing to, it was the people who were denying certain core biblical beliefs who left. With us, it was the other way around. But for both, there was an irresolvable disagreement over how people who claim to believe in Jesus should live. So in the middle of our passage here, as Adrian read for you, you read in chapter three, verse seven, little children, let no one deceive you about what is right, what is wrong morally as revealed in Jesus and taught by the scriptures. And so that's the lie that we're dealing with today. There's, we dealt with another lie last week. There are two main lies in the book of John. The first, as we dealt with last week, was those who are leaving saying that Jesus is not the Christ, meaning he's not God in human form, just a man, not God, not born of the Virgin Mary, not lived for us, died for us, rose again from the dead, just a man who died and stayed dead. That first lie is about belief, but this second lie is about how to live. And that is the deception here this week. So in other words, go ahead, they were hearing. It's fine, do, do this, do that. It's fine, morally it's not wrong. And we're not told specifically what that behavior is or what they were being encouraged to do. But uh, John talks about it in general terms like sin and lawlessness and darkness. But I think that's actually quite helpful for us because it's far more easy to apply that to our lives and to our time. And in every age, as we know, there are certain behaviors which the world and the culture around us says it's okay, it's not wrong. In fact, it's good. And for a long time in our country, in our country's history, it was slavery and racism, and the church was deceived. And we're still recovering now, hundreds of years later, still recovering. And now I wonder what the main deception is. What do you think? 
How long do we have? We could talk about so much. But I think especially what we're hearing now from the world in contradiction to the scriptures concerns sexuality and gender. And so what if once again, we're being deceived? Carl Truman, who I mentioned to you so many times in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, he traces several steps that our culture has taken to arrive at where we are currently. And and he's very convinced that we're being deceived. He says the first step was led by Rousseau, this philosopher in romanticism. And that taught that selfhood is to be understood primarily in inner psychological terms. And so in other words, our feelings, that is what is central to life. And happiness is exclusively a psychological state. So how we feel, that determines truth. But then the second step was by Sigmund Freud, who I'm sure you can imagine what he taught which was that true happiness, that inner psychological happiness, it is sexual satisfaction. So the primary and essential path to being happy is to engage in whatever satisfies you sexually. And if you're not doing that, you know what you're missing out on? Everything. You are missing out on life and the meaning and the purpose of life. Truman writes, before Freud, sex was an activity for procreation and recreation. I would probably use a different word than recreation, maybe mutual joy. But before Freud, sex was an activity for procreation and for mutual joy. After Freud, sex is definitive of who we are as individuals and societies and as a species. Is it true or not true? Not true, but we're listening. Are we being deceived? I want to ask the question this morning, why shouldn't we as Christians do this or do that? Whatever is contrary to the scriptures, the person of Jesus, to the historic teaching of the church, why should we not? John says two reasons, because of our new birth, our birth, but secondly, because of our doing. First of all, our birth. John speaks about being born of God. Maybe you heard it as Adrian read it for us a couple of different times, three times in our passage, in fact. 228, but then it twice in chapter three, verse nine, it's the same thing that he writes about in John three, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus. And did you notice when, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus comes at night, submerged and clouded by all of this darkness. And there he uses the phrase born again, or born from above either translation is possible, but born again is the most infamous of the options. And for some of you, that phrase born again, or born again, Christianity, it carries a fair amount of baggage. I've, I've had somebody tell me recently that they brought a friend to church. And one of the things that they told them about our church is that we're not one of those type of churches. And I said, what do you mean? One of those type of churches. And he went on to say, oh, you know, the kind of fire and brimstone type of Christianity, the, the really emotive type that, that lacks intellectual and theological depth. And I, and he, I let him talk after a while and after a while. And I said, fine, but let me be very, very clear to you that born again, Christianity is not a type of Christianity. It it is Christianity. If you haven't received what John speaks of here in these chapters or or what he describes there with Nicodemus and Jesus there in John chapter three, then you are not a Christian because this is Christianity. So what is it exactly? Being born of God, as John says. He says it, but he doesn't explain it. It's not very helpful. He mentions it, and then he just kind of assumes that the people that he's writing to know what he means. So you have to go to other parts of the scripture, including John chapter three, but also our Old Testament reading from Ezekiel chapter 36, which at first glance reads something like a horror film rather than something we would expect to be in the Bible. Because what is happening is that the prophet Ezekiel is having this vision of of walking in a field after a, a massive battle. 
And there, there are countless corpses lying all around. They're rotting in the sun or eventually being picked clean by birds or by animals, left there and dried out to the point where only bones are left. So countless, bright, white, dry bones shining in the sun. And the point of the image is this is physical death. There's nothing more dead physically than this. And God asked Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? And what is the answer? The answer is, of course, no, not unless something utterly miraculous happens, which is why Ezekiel answers, oh, Lord God, you know. Only if you, who created all of life and his life in himself, wants to recreate those who are now long dead, can these bones live. And this is a vision. This vision is a picture of Israel at that time. It's a picture of their armies. They had gone out into battle and they had been slaughtered just like this. But not just their armies, but also their very life itself, the very spiritual life of God's people at the time, individually and collectively. All of them, all people, their communities, their culture. This is Israel at the end of the Old Testament. But the scriptures would have us know that it's not just Israel then, it's all people, all communities, all cultures now left to ourselves apart from God. We are like a valley of dry bones. So before we go on, we have to ask ourselves, do we know this valley? It's our home like this valley. All heat, no warmth, hard, dry, fragile, no softness, no tenderness, no change in what's wrong, always the same issues, always the, all the time, always a way of living that's not really living. Is that our homes? Is it our marriage? Is it us with our children? Is it, is it you children with your parents? Is it any of us with our friends? Is our, is our soul like a valley of dry bones? Is yours? If so, this morning, God is asking you the same question. Can these bones live? And what is your answer? You dare to believe that God can do with you what he does here. Because whatever born again, being born of God is exactly the first step is realizing, admitting that this is true. This is true of me, valley of dry bones. And then daring to believe that God can make the very bones of your soul live regardless of what's going on. This is what he describes and talks about with Nicodemus there in John chapter three. It, it's nothing short of a supernatural intervention by God. And every New Testament author, all throughout the New Testament and, and threaded throughout the Old Testament, they all get to this at some point and talk about it in some way. Peter, for example, in, in 2 Peter chapter one, verse four, it may be the clearest. There he says that Christians have become partakers of the divine nature, meaning God's very character his very life. God's DNA, so to speak, has been implanted in you by God himself. If you are a Christian, not by your doing, but, but God's own doing, he's intervened. He's implanted new life, his very life inside of you, which if you stop to think about it is truly a scandalous type of image. If we were to, it should make us blush if we're really to read Peter and John and all of these authors for what they're actually saying. Because here in chapter three, verse nine, John says, God's seed abides in you. It's scandalous. It should make you blush. I mean, we're here in church. God's seed abides in you. The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It was the Bible that John used and read even as he and other authors were writing the New Testament. And the Septuagint, the word seed has two meanings. There's the literal and then there's the figurative. The literal meaning a seed from a plant or a tree or the figurative meaning 
man's seed. And here he says, God's seed, his natural or his nature, his life has been planted in you. In other words, to be a Christian is, is, is to have God's life within you. And John is an elderly man at this point, and I've told you this. And he says scandalous things, shocking things. All too often, older people get a pass when they do inappropriate things and say scandalous things. We know this. At my sister's wedding reception, the best man gave a toast, and it wasn't an appropriate toast in any way, shape, or form. And I don't remember exactly what he said, but basically he said, Lars, my brother-in-law, is now off the market. He is a one-woman man, and so all the ladies who have keys to his place need to come here and to give the keys back. And dozens upon dozens upon dozens of ladies walked out into the, the middle of the dance floor and threw the keys into the basket. And at some point he says, okay, I need all the keys. I, this is my job. I have to protect this, this, this marriage. He's a one woman man. So now anyone else and Alyssa's grandmother, who was 80 years old at the time, she walked out into the middle of the dance floor tossed the key into the basket, winked at Lars, and then just kind of sauntered off. And it was scandalous. It was entirely inappropriate, but she didn't care. She didn't care whatsoever. And John doesn't care. He doesn't care. He he wants this image to shock and to amaze. He is far more concerned about the image working than he is at any of his readers being offended Because what he is trying to get across is that if you believe in Jesus as the Christ and have been baptized into his name, new life lives in you. So new, so distinct, so significant. It's as if you've been born again because you have. Spiritually reborn from above by God. And that is Christianity. And it can't not produce new living, a new way of life. Which leads to the second point here, our doing. So why should we as Christians live differently, live different lives, morally, ethically, in all of our life? Number one, because of our birth. But secondly, because of our doing. This doing that inevitably results in, in, in new life. So you see this word practice in our text, seven different times. Seven times throughout this, this passage, the word practice is used. And I both like, and I don't like the word practice here as it's used here, because I like it because it communicates this ongoing repetitious sense. And, and that is what John is talking about. He's, he's not talking about one off acts of sin or righteousness. And when you hear the word righteousness here, just, just think doing that, which is right, according to who God is, according to, to what the scriptures say is true, good, and beautiful. So he's talking about a way of living, what is done and then done and then done over and over and always, because that is simply what this person is like. They are demonstrating in their lives over time to be this type of person. So their overarching moral behavior, it's predicated upon who they are in their souls. That's what he's talking about. So I like this word, but I don't like it because when we hear the word practice, what do we think of? What do we associate it with? Sports. So that's, that's what we associate it with. And that imports way too much intentionality to what John is saying. Because when you go out and you practice a sport, you make a plan or your coach makes a plan. And then you go out and you, you do this drill and you do that drill. You do this shot over and over in order to get this skill. It's very, very intentional. And, and there's a whole lot of conscious choice and agency involved. And that's not what John is describing here. It's not nearly as intentional as the word practice communicates to us. Because look at verse four. You see verse four here in chapter three, it says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning, 
mean, it sounds like we're, we're thinking about it and we're planning on doing it and we're going out and we're doing it. But what the text literally says is whoever does sin, whoever does it, verse seven, verse eight, verse nine, verse 10, whoever does it or who does not do it like it's their job, which may be the best sense of the word practice for us because a doctor practices medicine in a sense that he just does it daily. If you know doctors, if you are a doctor, doctors can't help but doing medicine. They see and they filter everything through a medical frame because that's who they are. So my youngest son, Pal, he's an eighth grader. and He's playing tackle football for the first time. We've never let him before because when he was four years old, he had a skull fracture. He fell backwards off a step, cracked his skull right behind his left ear. I can still hear the sound. It's terrible. And so we've not let him play. But this year, Alyssa and I caved. We caved. Friday night lights. Gave into it. And so he's playing. Several weeks ago, first play of the season, the kickoff comes to him. He's running straight up the, the field. And one of the biggest guys comes right at him. He lowers his shoulder and bang, hit helmet to helmet. And I was like, okay, there it goes. Season's over. He was fine. Next play, he's playing free safety. The biggest kid on the team. He's like, he was a massive child. Runs right up the middle. Pal comes running up there, lowers his shoulder, hits the kid right in the helmet. Helmet pops off. I was like, okay, short season, but he was fine. After the game, I mean, listen, I are cringing in the stands. After the game, I, I go to Pal and I'm like, dude, the first two plays of the season, I helmet to helmet, first two plays. He just looks at me and he goes, dad, that's just what I do. And it is. I said, that's why you've had concussions. That's just what I do. But it's true. And that's what John is saying here. That's what he's saying, that he's describing this doing. It's less chosen and much less conscious or intentional than it is expressive of an inherent internal state that this person possesses. That's why he says what he says in chapter two, verse 29, the very beginning of our passage, everyone who does righteousness, who does what is right, it's because they've been spiritually reborn. And then verse three or chapter three, verse eight, you see what he says there? Everyone who does sin is of the devil. And I'm going to come back to that in just a second, but it's much like what Jesus says in the sermon of the Mount in chapter seven, he says, beware of false prophets, those who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. It's exactly what John is saying. He's saying people are like trees. You're like trees. And the overall ongoing fruit of our outward lives will be according to our spiritual nature. So, so what is your spiritual nature? What is the state of your soul? You can see it. Look at your life. Look at your outward life. This is our doing. It's the importance of it. And two applications to doing, and then I'll close. Number one, our doing is not only expressive of our spiritual nature, it's also expressive of our spiritual belonging. That is what John says in verse eight. He sums up the entire section with it in verse 10. He speaks about being a child of God. And for him, being a child of God is not so much a status that is conferred upon them. That is true, by the way. It's true throughout the New Testament, especially with the Apostle Paul. When he speaks about being a child of God, he's typically thinking through the, the framework of an adoptive parent who adopts a child. And immediately that child has a new privileges, a new status, and a new identity. And for Paul, that's what it means to be a child of God, especially. It is something that is bestowed before it is realized. It is something that is given before it's seen and experienced. But John operates the opposite direction. 
Instead of saying, consider the status that you've been given by God in and through Christ, that who Christ is by nature, you share in by grace. Instead of saying that, he says, look at your life. Look at it. You are different. You have been changed. It's because God has invaded your life. He chose you. He claims you. And the reason that you believe in Jesus as, as the Christ and the reason that your life is different is because he has come into your life. In other words, your life shows who you belong to. It shows who is your master and your Lord. And make no mistake, I tell you this often, everyone has a master. Everyone does. Everyone belongs to someone. I don't have time to go into all the details, but simply to say there's no spiritual Switzerland. No spiritual Switzerland. Everyone likes Switzerland. Everyone wants to be Switzerland. And why? Because Switzerland has said back in the early 1800s, we're nobody's enemy. We're everybody's friend. We're not going to get involved in any sort of struggle that's happening in the world. We are neutral. There is no spiritual Switzerland in this world. There is no spiritually neutral heart. And in the broadest strokes possible to, to speak of it, as John does, everyone belongs either to Jesus or to the devil. That's what he says. Diabolos. That's the Greek word for devil. Did you know that? Diabolos. Sound like the Spanish word diablo? It comes from the Greek word to throw. Did you know that? That that's where it comes from? Because the idea is that the devil throws lies and slander and truth around everywhere. Lies about God. Lies about you. Lies about the world. Lies about what's true, right, and good. And that's why John uses this name here, this particular name, because these people who have left the church, that's what they're doing. They're throwing lies all about. And John is saying it's not just demonstrating what they are in their souls, but it's demonstrating whose they are, who they belong to, whose spell or control they are under. And I know that's probably one of the least plausible ideas for most modern people. It's hard for us to wrap our heads around that. But for ancient people, Christian, Jew, pagan, anyone, it was basic, fundamental human reality. Everyone has a master. Remember the Bob Dylan song? I've quoted it to you before. You know it? You might be a rock and roll addict prancing on the stage. Money, drugs at your command, women in a cage. You might be a businessman or a high degree thief. They may call you doctor. They may call you chief. But what? You're gonna have to serve somebody. It may be the Lord. It may be the devil. But you're gonna have to serve somebody. John agrees. We all have a master. And our lives, our doing shows it. And here's the hope. Here's where I close. As we can belong to Jesus. Wouldn't you rather belong to Jesus? And we cannot just belong to him, but according to John, this is the second application here to our doing, that those who belong to him become like him. In chapter three, verse one, John gets sidetracked. It's the very beginning of our passage, but it's this, I set it off in this paragraph here because he gets sidetracked. He, he's surprised, he's shocked. He gets overwhelmed by the thought that God loves him that God would actually love a man like him. He's talking along this thought, it seems, that God loves him comes into his mind. And he just gets completely sidetracked. He's amazed that God would love him and even these people that he's writing to. And he says, we are children of God. He is amazed. He is shocked and he is astounded. He says, we are children of God now. But it's as if he thinks, but the amazement has only just begun because he goes on to say, what we will be has not yet fully appeared. It's not yet fully happened because this new birth, it's a current reality, but it's not a static reality. It grows. 
It grows in us, especially as we, in and through our doing, our lives participate in it. So our doing of what is right and good and true, according to the scriptures, it increases the depth and the degree and the pervasiveness of righteousness in our lives. And in our souls, we become more like Jesus now. And John says in chapter two, verse 28, that that should be what we want more and above all else. And he says so because someday we'll see him. Did you hear Did you see that? Did you hear it when Adrian read it? We'll see it. We'll see him. And when we do so, we want to do so confidently. That's the word confidently, as spiritually beautiful as possible, much like a bride on her wedding day. What do brides on their wedding day look like? I think we have a bride here this morning. There's a wedding here later this afternoon. I think the bride and the groom are here in this service, but what's a bride look like on her wedding day? Hmm? More physically beautiful than she will ever be in all her life. Why? Because of all the preparation Months and months of, of working out and self-discipline and, and, day, and, and, and all this dieting and then hours and hours of styling her hair and makeup. And then, and then there's the dress that costs more than her last semester in college. And, and all for that moment, that one moment when she will be seen by him. No bride ever fails to prepare for that moment to become as radiantly beautiful as possible for her groom. No bride ever shrinks back from their groom in shame. None. The doors swing open and confidently they stride in and how beautiful they have become for that one moment. And friends, it can be that with us as well. It can be so with us, with Jesus. We will see him and And John says, it will be this way with you. So live into the life that lives in you. Be prepared to see him, to be seen by him. Because the one that you will see is the one who loves you, who has come for you. You will see him. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you pray that by your spirit, we would know who lives within us and that we would live into the very reality of the life that we possess. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.